0: each and every one of you are here today. A special welcome uh, to those of you visiting with us this morning. Uh, definitely glad you're here. We're going to continue this morning um, in our study through the book of Acts. This morning we're in chapter 14. And if you were here last week, you'll be happy to know that chapter 14 has a lot less verses than chapter 13. <laughs> I like so we, uh, we rolled through a lot last week. But we are in the middle Of uh, Paul's and Barnabas's uh, missionary journey, it's the first called the first missionary journey um, of the Apostle Paul. They had been sent out from Antioch. Remember, there's multiple Antiochs um, in this time, but they're sent out from from Antioch. Antioch. That's on a major river, and it's the third uh, most important city in the Roman Empire at that time. Um, And so, we're going to continue this morning looking at some of the challenges. ...that were faced by Paul and Barnabas um, in that missionary journey. Um, One of the things we want to really take from that this morning is that when God asks you to do something, it doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. Sometimes God asks you to do something, and what He's asking you to do is actually very, very difficult. Um, So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then uh, we'll hop right into it together. So Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege this morning... To come together to worship you in your presence, God, uh, we are here for that purpose um, to be in fellowship with you, uh, to grow um, in our faith to be better equipped uh, to serve um, our communities Lord and Lord, we pray that you would help us to be faithful and to be help, help us to be faithful when things are difficult and so we thank you that you love us that you're with us that Because you are with us and because you empower us, there is nothing that we cannot handle. Um, Lord, that you are our rock, our strength, um, our hope, and our ever-present Redeemer. We thank you, Jesus, for your great love for us, your love that put you to the cross for our sins. Um, We're thankful that the grave could not hold you and that you are the risen King. And so it's in your name, Jesus, that we pray these things. Amen. So let's just begin. We'll read the first seven verses as we continue on um, in this journey. It says, Now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a great multitude, both of the Jews and the Greeks, believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. Therefore, they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the multitude of the city was divided, part-sided with the Jews, and those would be the unbelieving Jewish people, and part with the apostles. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Laconia, and to the surrounding region, And they were preaching the gospel there. And then we have it, um, you know, here in in Iconium, as they continue on this this, uh, journey, this missionary endeavor, uh, and they're in this city, that there is a mixed reception. Some of the people become believers, both of of Jewish and Gentile descent, um, and some don't. And there becomes this division Uh, it becomes really the big story of the city. The big story of the city at this time is, you know, what what are we going to do with this message that Paul and Barnabas have brought? And so then there's this, you know, the stirring up of the people and there there comes this attempt. They know there's going to be this attempt to to stone them. And this is going to be important that we keep in mind as we move throughout this, this chapter that, Again, the message that they give to all the people is the same, but the reception is going to be different based on the hearts of the people that are receiving the message. It's interesting that, you know, a message can be preached and one person would say, yes, I believe and want to become a disciple of Jesus. And another person would say, I want to stone you to death. I mean, that's the same message. Given with the same heart, the same attitude, the same tone. There's nothing different. They're both hearing the same, you know, both people are hearing the same thing. And one says, I believe. And the other says, I want to kill you. So sometimes we have to understand it's not about the the messenger or the message. It's about the receptivity of the people and their, their hearts. And that goes along with what Jesus taught about the soils with the farmer going to to scatter his seed. And it's the same farmer, and it's the same seed, but the type of soil makes the difference there in terms of what the result is. We also see here, and we'll see throughout this chapter, that though while Paul and Barnabas are willing to suffer for the name of Jesus, they do not seek out that suffering. They're not like, oh, they're going to stone us, let me just stay here and get stoned. You know, they, they actually leave and go to another place. We're going to let that calm down. We're going to go to another place, you know, and then see what doors open and close as they go along. And so that's what brings us um, to there in Lystra and Derby and the cities of Laconia and that surrounding region. So they're going all over the place here, you know, sharing the good news of Jesus. And in verse 8, it says in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting a cripple from his mother's womb, who had never walked. And this man heard Paul speaking, and Paul observed him intently, and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand up straight on your feet. And he leaped and walked. And now when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Laconian language, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief Speaker. Then the priests of Zeus, whose temple was in front of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. And so again, we've got to remember the cultural context for which Paul and Barnabas are bringing the good news of Jesus Christ. That cultural context is a Greek-influenced culture, um, you know, with all the gods that come along with this. And you're probably familiar, you know, with Zeus. some of you who've, who've you know, maybe taken a mythology class or uh, studied these sort of you know, certain types of literature in school uh, may be familiar with Hermes um, as well. But just to give a little bit about him, um, he was viewed as a chief messenger between the gods and humans. So he's a chief messenger, of the go between. He was one skilled in speech. He's, he was also the one that they believed would transport souls to the underworld. Upon death, And so you can see how with Paul being a very skilled speaker and, you know, the miracles that he performed um, and how he talked about hu- how humans can be reconciled to God, that, you know, you can see how their mythology, their religious ideas and beliefs would, you know, filter all of that. And they come to this conclusion, the gods are among us, Paul is... You know, this is actually, you know, Hermes in in the flesh. But verse 14, but when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitudes crying out and saying, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men with the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless, useless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea and all the things that are in them and who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness, in that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful season, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. What we love about this passage is we see in it the heart of Paul and Barnabas, both for God and for the people. Both for God and for the people. Because you know, they wanted God to be glorified. They wanted God to receive the glory and the honor from the, you know, the works that they did, any, any sort of miracles that God did through them, any sort of um, result of the, of the message being preached. They wanted God To receive the glory. They wanted God to receive the glory. And we have to understand that this is very different from the natural human flesh. That each one of us walk around with every day. Because our natural human flesh wants us to be glorified. But Paul and Barnabas are so enraptured. With with God, with their Savior Jesus Christ, that they don't want that glory for themselves. And to be in a position to receive that glory that would go, that should go to God, but instead would go to them, it's painful for them. You know, because this, what they do here when they rip their clothes, remember that their, their cultural background. And that for them, I mean, that's a sign of, of, of mourning, a sign of deep distress. You know, you know, we're usually in our culture, we don't have people, you know, ripping their clothes at funerals and, you know, things like that. But that would be something that would happen, you know, in, a, in you know, the, the, the people of Israel. As you look back even through the Old Testament and you see, you know, when they're in deep mourning, what do they do? They rip their clothes, they put on sackcloth, this uncomfortable you know, rough material, and they dump ashes on their head and on their body because they're in mourning. And, we, you know, for us in our culture, we're like, you did what? You mean you didn't just, like, put on a comfortable, you know, bathrobe and, like, you know, curl up with some Ben and Jerry's? Because that's what we do when, you know, we're in mourning, right? <laughs> so that's, uh, you know, a little different, a little different, a little different approach, I'm just. <laughs> wow, okay, you're done. Well, I mean, you know, sometimes, sometimes. Wow, called it out. Call it out. All right. My, at least it was my wife who said that, not somebody else. Oh, okay. There we go. Awesome. Winning. Um, so, not to lose track, we see how distressed. We see how distressed Paul and Barnabas are. They are distressed about this, and they they really want the people to know the true and living God. And he actually says to them, We are men with the same nature as you. You know, we're not different than you are. And that's really important here because Paul and, and Barnabas didn't look at themselves as, you know, we're up here. Because we know, I mean, they do have something different. They do have a faith in God that makes them different from the people that they are speaking to. But they did not use that in a prideful way or to view themselves as something special. They know that they've been saved by the grace of God. They know that they don't deserve any of the goodness of God that they've received in their lives. Paul refers to himself as the chief among sinners. He views himself as a person least worthy to receive the grace of God. So he says, we are men with the same nature as you and preach to you. Now this is really important because he doesn't pull punches here. That you should turn from these useless things to the living God. So basically what he's saying here is, you know, your religion, your mythology, your, your work, your sacrificing to Zeus and to Hermes and, you know, all these gods of the Greeks. It's useless. You're wasting your time. That's pretty strong. When you go into a culture, they're going to a culture. And they say, what you have believed now for generations, you have, it's useless. It accomplishes nothing for you. There's a boldness there, and there's, it's not an arrogance. It's a love for those people that they would know the true and living God. It's a love that does this. But, you know, we, we live in a day and time now where culture has become this sacred thing. Like, you don't touch culture. You don't touch culture. It's become this sacred element. And what we have to do as, as followers of Jesus is to say, no to that. We evaluate culture, and the things that are along with God, we say yes to. We affirm. And the things that go against God are to be you know, rejected. And there's other things that are neutral that can be redeemed. Like usually, for example, music is something that's neutral. It's just a style. It's like whatever that culture does and has. That can be redeemed. We don't have to go, you don't have to go in and say, well, you need to play the music this way. And now this is the song you should sing. And, you know, and, and kind of, you know, um, in our culture, in our situation, like westernize and Americanize, you know, everything. We want the churches, you know, whether we're in Mexico or whether we're somewhere in Africa or whether we're somewhere in China, we want those chose churches to use their music and to write their words to it and express their love for God out of that. We don't have to go in and say, well, you know, play Amazing Grace and this is how you play it. Their culture can be redeemed. That part of their culture can be redeemed in that way. But when you go into a culture, say um, in India, where they had the, the, the religious practice of burning widows when the husbands died, you know, put her on the funeral fire, burned alive. We do not accept that and say culture is sacred. No, we reject that and say that that element of the culture is evil and sinful and degrades God's creation. That, that we don't accept that. What, what it really is, is murder. And so, no. You know, and a lot of people will take issue with that from a anthropological you know, position. You know, you have the same situation even with you know people um, you know in, in certain you know tribes in Brazil and the anthropologist saying, Don't take it, you know, it's it's wrong for you to take a dentist there. Because they haven't developed that on their own yet. And we go, wait a second. Well, what culture has developed everything that it has on its own? There's always a sharing that goes on. And so the only thing I can say to the anthropologist is, you sit there with the tooth rotten in your mouth. And you endure that pain before you tell somebody else not to get help. You know, and so we have to think realistically and biblically and logically about these things and when we know something to be true it is not love to let people continue on in an unchallenged law that is not love to let people go continue on in an unchallenged law and this is a law that had been unchallenged for generations in their culture that zeus was real that hermes was real that you know you had to placate the gods And these gods were not, you know, always good or always did good things. You know, they they oftentimes just played games with humanity. And that's, you know, that was their view of of the gods. And so it was a it was a terrible trap. A a mental prison. That these people were in. And Paul and Barnabas have the boldness and the love to say that you should turn from these useless things to the living God. And that is where we do have to be clear. We do not say you know, all beliefs are, are equally valid. You know, we, don't, we don't believe that about all sorts of things. We don't believe every approach to mathematics is equally valid. <laughs> you know, we don't. We, we, we don't. But, I, so, but when it comes to religion, you're now you know, this intolerant person. You know, you're an evil person if you say something is higher than or better than Something else. The question that I have with that is that how could anybody who believes they have the truth be loving if they believe that that truth was just this relative thing that, you know, take it or leave it, it doesn't matter. Now, what's interesting here is that Paul and Barnabas, they use the same reasoning that Jesus did on the Sermon on the Mount, you may recognize that when he says, He did not leave them without witness, and that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. Matthew five forty three, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies, bless those who curse you and do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven." For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even tax collectors do so. Therefore you shall be perfect or complete, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. And so that's Jesus' encouragement to follow the example that God is, because God does send his reign on the just and on the unjust, you know, alike. And he gives blessings. He gives a common grace, you know, to all of humanity. And we can give thanks for that. The sun rises every day for every person, you know, on the planet, um, you know, regardless of whether they are good or bad. And that's a common grace that God, that God gives. however, God doesn't want to leave people in their lost and and misinformed state. And that's ultimately why Jesus came to die on the cross in the first place. Is because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but has everlasting life. This we affirm and we hold to be true that God so loved the world. And so if we are to love the world, then we also have to share that same message that God has for the world. And that message is ultimately wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ. But you know, it is the world's way to love those who love you, to hate those who hate you. And this is what, is, what we see throughout this passage, is that Paul and Barnabas are not shaken by their reception. They don't, they don't overly love when people are receptive to them to where they take it for themselves as they've done something great and that, you know, they take that as like a great personal accomplishment or something. And they also don't overreact when people um, react poorly to their message. You know, we never, you know, you don't find Paul and Barnabas turn around writing like, and you should hate the people who did this to us in this place. You just won't find it in the scriptures. Why? Because Jesus taught them to love their enemies. And if you're serious about being, if you and I are serious about being followers of Jesus, then with that comes the responsibility to love our enemies. And that's, again, one of those things that's easy to say, difficult to actually put into practice when there are emotions and pressure and difficult situations. But to love our enemies Of to love those who call themselves our enemies. So now, let's pick back up in verse 19 as we have a turn of events. So some of the Jewish people from Antioch and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went to the city. And the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. I want to stop there for a second. These people um, in Lystra, you know, they they didn't have a great discernment. So one minute they're ready to offer sacrifice and call these, you know, call Paul a god. And another minute they're ready to stone him to death. You know, they don't have great, they kind of like, Whatever I'm being, they're being told, they just kind of run with. Uh, and there are a lot of people like that today, you know, and, and whatever news comes around, it's like believed regardless of who the source is, you know. And so these people, I think, would have fit right in in our Internet era where people just go, oh, I saw it on the Internet. And as Abraham Lincoln said, if you've seen it on the Internet, it must be true. <laughs> right? Okay. Some of you get the joke. Oh, All right. Okay, that's a Greg Hanks joke, actually. Greg Hanks, we love you. That's, that's your joke. Give you credit. Um, so most of the people, you know, in Leisure were fickle. They lacked discernment, and they didn't have that foundation of the truth. You know, where Jesus talked about building our, building our lives on, you know, Him and, and His teachings. If you build your life on, on Jesus and his teachings, then in general you're going to have better discernment than if you don't. You know, you're going to be less swayed by everything that popular, the idea that comes around you know, in the world. And we've seen in our, in our generation, you know, we've seen tremendous changes in cultural thought and ideas. And you, and you see people just kind of, the scripture talks about it like being in the waves, tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. But when you build your life on Jesus Christ and on his teachings, you build your life on the word of God, then you're less likely to be swayed by those cultural shifts and trends. Now, with that, we also have to say that we are still teachable. We are still lifelong learners. Our positions and opinions can change, but they need to change because we have a better biblical understanding. Not because we're just going with whatever's popular you know, in the culture. And so we need to have our understanding based on the word of God. And we need to evaluate our culture based on the word of God. And if we do that, we'll be in pretty good shape. Again, here we see that when necessary, Paul, and, and we also see throughout the scriptures, his companions are willing to suffer, They don't, you know, they're not running like, hey, stone me, but if it's time to get stoned, it's time to get stoned. And they didn't allow this to hinder their commitment to the Lord and to his work. And that's really critical here because they went, you know, he went out the, the following day and It says we have, it's a derby in verse 21. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, and now you might say, well, okay, he returned there, but maybe the other people who had stoned him and stirred up the crowds had left, right? Iconium, that's where the people were from that stirred up the crowds, and Antioch, he went back to all those places. Now, that's not the sending church place, Antioch, this is Antioch and Pisidia. And so, they went back to the places that they had been previously Verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. So when we talk about making disciples and strengthening disciples, it's important that we follow along with the example of Paul and Barnabas, that they made sure to tell the correct message. And the correct message was, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. Now, how often is that message preached today? We must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. How often is that preached? And then, you know, this is what I would contend with you this morning, that many times people are not serious in their following of Jesus Christ because they have not been challenged to do so. And they've not been challenged to truly count the cost. And so what happens is you know, a weak message and a weak call ends up creating weak disciples. If disciples at all, it ends up creating weak disciples. And so if we are teaching people, if if people are being taught that Jesus and you know, God, Father, God, Son, God, the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, That God is this, you know, like genie figure in a bottle where when you have a difficult time in life or when you really want something, you make your wishes known and then God grants those wishes to you. And that's the that's the whole and sum of life with God, that God exists to be your personal assistant, that God exists to make your life better. But what happens then when when difficulties do arrive in life. People become very disenfranchised. Very quickly. They become very disappointed. With God. At even a small speed bump in life. Become very disappointed with God. Because I've been taught. God exists. For you. That's been the message. You know to have. To have your best life. You need God to be your personal assistant, and he'll help you accomplish everything you want to accomplish. He'll give you everything that you want. Well, that's different than the message of the word of God, which the message of the word of God is, God is God. That he is to receive all the glory and honor and praise, and that we exist to worship him. It's about the order of things. Who's first and who's second? Well, a lot of our theology has us first and God is a servant to us. But the reality that we have to remind ourselves of every day is that God is God and I exist to worship and to serve Him. And I can do that joyfully and cheerfully because God is good. Because God does have our best as part of His working. It's just that his best for us is to become more like Jesus. And Jesus's life was not an easy life. So we cannot expect our lives to be an easy life. So we've got to get away from this kind of like trying to sell somebody a junky old used car and telling them it's great. You know, just tell them what they want to hear. Oh, it's going to, you know, do this for you and that for you and the other thing for you. And it's super cheap. You know, we've got to get away from that when we're talking about God with people. To give a a true opportunity and a true challenge that, yes, yes, God wants to save you from your sins. Yes, God wants to redeem you and to forgive you and to reconcile you. Yes, God wants to do all these for you. But he also desires that Jesus is the king of your life and that you become his willing servant. And so we've set the bar, the the expectation so low that we end up with crowds of nothing. Crowds of nothing. Because the bar is so low. And we need to raise that bar to to true discipleship that says, yes, this, and especially at certain times in your life, this will cost you. This will cost you. And it might not be a physical beating, but it might be an emotional beating. It might be a mental beating. It might be a spiritual beating. But will you get back up and go back into those same places with boldness and love and courage and say, Jesus is still my Savior and King? And will you still try to make disciples? Back in those same environments where it was a mixed bag and like some good and some negative. Some receptive and others not. You go back in and say, we'll get back up. And it's really interesting here that the ones who had suffered the most are the ones doing the encouraging. And telling others like, hey, this is okay. And, you, and this is what we often find even true today. The people who have endured the most hardship in the following of Jesus are oftentimes the ones that are the most encouraging and exhorting to God is good. Keep being faithful to the Lord. And that should be an encouragement to all of us and believe that it that it is. So we see here that they were strengthened to the souls of the disciples exhorting them to continue in the faith. Verse 23, says, So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And after they had passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. Now when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed." And now when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And so they stayed there a long time with the disciples. And that is just such a, a cool passage because you see their, their fervent like, activity and they just had to go and keep you know, telling people, but they had to build up the church. You know, they really wanted to strengthen it. And this idea that they were strengthening the souls of the disciples. And that question comes up, you know, what is a disciple? What does that mean? What does that look like? And so this idea of discipleship has a lot to do with the idea of, you know, being an apprentice, being someone who learns from another and becomes like that person and, you know, gains the same knowledge and skills and, you know, abilities. And so the whole goal of discipleship is to see all of us become more like Jesus. And, and we could put it in, in this way. It's kind of like it's like being on a team and having coaching. And I know that I, I try not to use sports analogies too much because we have people that don't really care that much about sports and I don't want to kill you every week with the sports analogy. But I did bring a basketball today. <laughs> so, well, my kids basketball today. And, and what I mean by this is, you know, you have practice and then you have the game. And in practice, you're teaching kids... To do something that doesn't always translate in the game. Right? You know, I've got pre, you know, because I'm teaching my kids, you know, coaching for my kids' teams. So i got pre-K and kindergartners. You teach pre-K and kindergartners to do something in practice and then you get out of the game. And a lot of times it's like, what? Butterfly. Well, actually there's no butterfly in the gym. But you get what I'm saying. You know, it's like, you know, organized chaos sometimes. I had a kid yesterday. Take what he had learned in practice. And he faked a pass. And he got his man open and made the pass. And the kid, other kid caught the ball and shot it and made it. And it was real basketball <laughs> with four-year-olds. Uh-uh. And I, could, I mean, that's the four-year-old when it comes to kids' sports. When it comes to like four, that's the equivalent of like NASA putting a man on the moon. Like that's, <laughs> that is, e- that, those things are equal. In terms of fake the pass, make the pass. I mean it was I mean, I'm going crazy. This is incredible. I mean our, our part of the stands going nuts. We saw that. We have real basketball here. Four year olds. Okay. Now here we are as a church and, and we're we are a you know a team and, and when we come together, this is like a a team meeting. But when you go to your place of work. When you go out into the world, that's the court. And that's where we hope to take the things that we learn here and apply them. Make the pass, make the pass, whatever it is. But we want to apply that. So when there's a situation when somebody is gossiping and then we don't participate in that, there's an opportunity to share the gospel. And we do. That's being a good teammate. That's being part of the team and making a a, a winning play. That's what that is, but we're a team out there, and we're, I mean, granted, we're, we're all you know in different places of work and doing different things throughout the day, but that whole world, it's one court. And so with that, we need to encourage each other. You're part of the court. like what, do, what are you doing to move us forward? How are you participating in such a way that helps us? To accomplish the mission that our coach gave us. That Jesus gave us. And we all get to participate in that in different ways. But discipleship is when someone takes what they've seen and takes what they've learned. Takes what they've heard and then in the game of life, they put it into practice. That's a beautiful thing. And when we see that happen, we should all be cheering. When you've got a friend, you know, you've got somebody in the church, a brother or sister, and they're like, hey, I got to share Jesus with my coworker the other day. I mean, let's, let's get some cheering and applauding for that. Not that we're like just trying to, you know, give the glory, you know, to that person again, but we're thankful that God is working in that person's life and, and working through that person. And that needs to be encouraged. When we see somebody being generous, hey, that's awesome. That's awesome. We need to encourage that. When we see somebody being encouraging, we need to encourage encouraging. Even I mean, all of these things. It's what being part of the team is about. But we have to view it that way that there are, you know, we're, we're at the level, it's kind of funny because nobody's, keep, nobody's keeping score. But, of course, people are keeping score, you know, pre-K and kindergarten basketball. But there is a score being kept. It does matter. The wins and the losses here on this earth, they do matter. They do matter. Because when you see a life get destroyed, you know that it matters. It matters. When I'm sitting there in a, in a prison in Mexico with a 17-year-old kid who's committed murder, it matters. It matters that he wasn't reached when he was 13. It matters. It matters. The wins and the losses on that are eternal. They're huge. But when you have one person who's been in the family and for generations it's been spiraling out of control, and that one person comes to know Jesus and becomes you know, a true disciple and is following Jesus with their whole life. And you can see a genera- you know, that that's going to shift the game for generations to come. That matters. That's big. That's what winning is. And we need to make sure that we understand in our church what winning is about. Winning is not about people from one church coming and being part of another church. That's not winning. That's that's a game of trading cards. That's not not winning. Winning is when people come to know Jesus. Winning is when people new to the community that need the Lord or need encouragement to grow in their faith. That's that's really what the... Those are big wins. Those are big wins. And I know... Listen, sometimes God calls people to do you know a shift and move it. I'm, I'm not negating that 100 percent, but I just want us to understand what winning is for us. But in that, even, I have to back up one step, because we're not responsible for the results, just like Paul and Barnabas weren't responsible for the results. And that ultimately, winning is obedience, but we have to believe. That if we are obedient, we'll see some of those tangible wins. The true winning is the obe- it's just the act of obedience. But just like with Paul and Barnabas, yes, there's going to be a lot of people who are just going to shut it down. We don't want that. Get that out of here. But for others who will say, yes, Jesus is now my Savior and King. It's worth it. It's worth it. If we handle the obedience part, we can trust God to handle the fruit part. And we see those wins. If we handle the obedience part, we can trust God to handle the fruit part. So let's get after that and make sure that this week we're playing to win. What does it mean to play to win? This is the last thoughts on that illustration. But to play to win, you have to prepare to win. How do we as followers of Jesus prepare to win? Well, first, we were serious about our purpose to remember Jesus, to worship him, and to press into his presence. We take the bread and the cup together. That's preparing to win, because in that we have to examine our hearts and say, what shouldn't be there before I take that? That's preparing to win. Reading our Bibles consistently. Preparing to win. Praying is preparing to win. Fellowship is preparing to win. Challenging one another is preparing to win. Those things are preparation for winning so that when you're in the game and the pressure's on, you can execute what's been given. You can fake the pass. You can make the pass. Game-winning play. Everybody, we all go crazy. I'll go crazy over that. All right. All right. So here are questions. Who do you want to get the glory? Are you willing to suffer so that God will get the glory? Are you working to make disciples of Jesus Christ? And how do you need to be encouraged in your life, faith, and ministry? Because sometimes we have to say, listen, I'm not doing so great in the game right now, and I need some accountability, and I need some prayer, I need some love, I need some encouragement, and we need just to have the boldness to say that. To tell a brother or sister, I need a little bit of help being a better, a better player, better teammate. Nothing wrong with that. We all need that from time to time. I don't care if it's the you know, person who you think never needs that. Everybody needs that sometimes. Everybody. Everybody needs that. And so let's make sure if you need that this morning that you ask for it and that you receive it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that you love us, God, and that you have designed us to be in community. And that you've designed that community to be on mission with you. And so help us, Lord Jesus. Help us, Lord Jesus, to be people who are serious about being obedient to you, about being true disciples, about building up other disciples, Lord. Seeing new disciples come into the family. So Lord, help us to be about these things. In your name, Jesus, we ask it. Amen.